You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. We're going through Hosea, as, as we've been told, and a great study guide if you want for your personal study or a small group study guide. The study guide from Crossways is called Hosea. It's by Lydia Brownback. It's a 12-week study. So I would just encourage you, you can order it on Amazon. It'll be a good uh, resource as we study together this amazing book of God's relentless love. When you, heard the, when you hear the word messy, what comes to mind? When you hear the word, <laughs> oh my, what comes to mind now, my lovely wife? <laughs> uh, do, do you think of dirty? Do you think of impure? Do you think of unkept, chaotic, complex, disordered, unpleasant? Depending how things are going for you this morning, you might think of other words like confusing, disruptive, dysfunctional. The prophet Hosea finds himself in a very messy relationship, in a messy situation. Remember from last week, God called Hosea, a spokesman, right, for God, to speak to the sins and the idol worship of the northern kingdom of Israel. They had turned away from the Lord, and so God raised up Hosea to speak to these broken people, messy people. Remember, we talked about how a prophet is one who's anointed, authorized, and empowered by the Spirit to speak the very words of God. We also learned that as Hosea is a prophet, he's in line of the prophets that point to the true and ideal prophet, Jesus Christ. So even as we look at this text this morning, as we journey through Hosea, we learn of Christ. In this passage, particularly, God calls him to enter into an extremely complex, difficult, messy relationship. And God uses some very graphic words in describing this relationship. We will be challenged and shocked in what God calls Hosea to do. I'm just going to read the first chapter, verses 2 through 11, and then I'll read the second part at each of my points. Beginning with chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dabalam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu, For the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy, no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horse or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, 
for you're not my people, I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, and for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, as we gather around your word this morning, as we uh, focus on, on what you would have us to learn today, Lord, Holy Spirit, we pray you would prepare our hearts, that you would convict our hearts, that you would restore and change us even in the time together. We thank you that your spirit delights to do that work in us and through us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's some important words we need to really fully understand as we enter into this series in Hosea. And one of the major terms that we need to understand is the word covenant. As you saw in our confession of our call to worship and our confession of sin, we, we heard the terms covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties, typically involving these things. A formal statement of their relationship, a list of stipulations and obligations for both parties, a list of witnesses and to the agreement, and a list of curses for unfaithfulness and blessings for faithfulness to the covenant. We see throughout the Old Testament, God establishing covenant with his people. Even when God enters in a relationship with Adam, right, he, he, there's a sense that there's a covenant he's making with Adam there. That if you do these things and don't do these things, this relationship will keep going smoothly. Then after the fall, when Adam broke the covenant, we see that there's stages of covenant. We see the covenant that God has with Abraham, then with Noah, then Moses, then David, and then Jeremiah. And there's even smaller covenants. But in all those covenants, we see that God is about bringing a story of redemption. It's, he's unfolding in each of those covenants what he desires to do with his people. What We see his love for his people, and we see that it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So covenant, this idea that God delights to enter into, into relationship with people, he's committed, he's persistent in that covenant, he, he, he is keeping his, his end of the bargain no matter what, even in the midst of the other side not keeping the covenant, even in the midst of God's people's unfaithfulness, he is committed to the covenant. To go along with this idea of covenant, we have this, this term betrothal or betrothed. Each covenant God established with his people was, a, was designed to reflect his love, his fidelity, and the exclusiveness of this, in a sense, marriage relationship that he has with his people. That God himself is a true husband and we are his bride. We are the ones that he has come to purchase. In fact, it finds its fulfillment in the new covenant in Christ, where the husband of the bride, the church, says this in Ephesians 5, that he loved the church and gave himself for her and nourished her and cherished her. That is God's commitment to us in Christ, that he is our true husband. As you know, if you've been to any marriage ceremonies that I, that I do, there's always something I say before the couple, the husband and wife, 
or the potential husband and wife give to their vows. I say this, there are no qualifiers or disclaimers in their marriage. Your vows say nothing about being loved back. You are pledging your love regardless of your attitudes or actions, regardless of how well they perform or behave. Each of you assume 100% responsibility for, the, for their marriage. That is the nature of the covenant, I say. Each party makes an irrevocable vow. And then I say this, that is why we need Jesus. That is why we need Jesus. It's impossible for us to keep our vows apart from a growing intimate relationship with God. And that's the whole point of Hosea. This idea of covenant and betrothal shows forth God's desire for a growing, intimate, permanent relationship with his people, with you and with me. That is why Hosea is called to preach to the northern kingdom of Israel. For they have broken the covenant. They have turned to other things to worship. Their disobedience to the covenant brings a chaotic mess. Now, as we look at the story, there's always a danger at looking at this family that describes so, sin so graphically to assume that we do not identify with such radical sin. But let me remind you, as I have in the past, the story of redemption, the gospel reminds us of this, that you and I are more sinful than we ever thought or imagined. That we are more sinful than we ever thought or imagined. And it'll be helpful for you to realize that as we go through the story of Hosea, that that's true for each one of us. In fact, Hosea, another key word that we need to understand, not only covenant or betrothal, this term idolatry. Hosea's primary message is a call away from idolatry, specifically for the people of of Israel from the worship of Baal. But what's interesting is that they went to the worship of Baal because somehow they did not find life or meaning and purpose in their relationship with God. So they went after other things. They were influenced by their culture and they said that was much better than their own relationship with God. But that's not, that's not only true here, but we see that Israel, there's a long history of this cycle of failing to trust and remain faithful to the Lord. There's a cycle of them always turning to idols to meet their needs. In fact, trusting in anything beside the Lord robs him of the devotion and mercy he alone deserves. You see, idols in the Old Testament primarily consisted of these worship of fertility and nature deities, often influenced by the surrounding nations. But I want us to, to bring it home. This idolatry is anything, listen, anything that displaces trust and allegiance to God. Anything that displaces trust and allegiance to God can become an idol. An idol, idolatry, is a struggle of every one of us. Every one of us struggle with idolatry. John Calvin himself says, we, we are idol factories. Our hearts are full of idol factories. You know, it might not be worship of other gods, but it may be money. Money is more important to us than our relationship with God. It could be our children. We put so much devotion to our children that that means more than us than our relationship with God. It could be sex. It could be our reputation, our fame, our acceptance, our relationships. Anything's are potential idols for us. Honestly, we need to deeply grasp the reality of our struggle with these types of idolatry if we're truly going to experience and understand fully the relentless love of God. 
that he has for you in Jesus Christ. But what's amazing, not only does, does Hosea exposes our, our sin and what drives us to, to go to other things, we also see this other truth, right? The story of redemption also reminds us that you're a lot more loved and delighted and accepted than you ever thought or imagined. So this morning, we'll see both of those going on. So we're going to just look at chapter 1 and then part of chapter 2. I was going to be ambitious and try to do all three chapters. They ain't going to happen. Next week, we'll get to chapter, the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. But this morning, I want us to focus on chapters 2 through 11, a messy family of vivid illustrations. And then the second point I want to talk about is discipline. Unfaithfulness will be, un will be punished. So look with me, at, I'm not going to read again, verses 2 through 10. We see in this section a pretty messed up family. God instructs Hosea to marry Gomer, who in the past has a sort past and will prove to be an extremely unfaithful wife. Even the line of, of the family that she comes from signifies that this is true of her parents as well, that they too live this particular life that, that Gomer is living. But Gomer's unfaithfulness in this marriage reflects Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Keep that in mind. So God uses hard words to describe the type of woman Hosea is to marry. G Gomer, to use a popular phrase, right, Lisa and I high school, she's one who had a reputation, right? Her reputation was on steroids, in a sense. Now think about it. Prophet Hosea, right? The prophet, the spokesman of God. In fact, a faithful man of God was called to marry someone like Gomer. You know, as I think about that, that call must have been agonizing for him. Of all the women, God, of all the women in Israel, you're calling me to marry Gomer? This woman who has a reputation on steroids? What in the world, God? Why? See, what Hosea had to do was in miniature what God done in giving his love to a partner, us, with a history and a rogue eye. That we too, God's people, and us included, have a reputation. A reputation that needed to be dealt with. So we see a messy wife, but we also see messy children. Child number one. Hosea said, name my firstborn son Jezreel. Now, you know names matter. His name points back to the wicked Israelite king Ahab who murdered Naboth, who was a godly man from Jezreel. See, Ahab, King Ahab's primary evil was to, was to promote Baal worship, again, as the national religion of Israel. Again, he promoted putting trust in other things other than the true and faithful God of the covenant. Again, names are important. We see here that God told Hosea to name his firstborn son Jezreel. And it has meaning to the past. Names are often prophetic. Names are at times meant to serve as symbols of covenant breaking and coming judgment. In the Old Testament, naming was authoritative. At creation, right, God gave Adam, instructed Adam to name the animals, signifying man's dominion over all creation. Additionally, the name given to a child or the or rename of an adult often pointed to some distinguishing characteristics in the life of one being named. 
names were also signs for the Messiah. Think of the, the naming of Jesus. It was, it, was, it was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So here, Jesus, uh, uh, God, or Hosea naming his first son Jezreel showed the depths of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. It shows the depth of how far they have turned away from their true God. That's their first child that they had together. Now we see that in this passage that there's a second and third child, and it gets even messier. Why do I say that? The Hebrew word to describe the birth of the next two children suggests that Hosea was not the biological father. That Gomer had these next two kids with other men. This is reinforced by the names given to the children, no mercy and not my people. These names are cut even deeper than to the heart than Jezreel, who loses a war in a kingdom, but there's a potential now to, be, to even be more desperate where you, you lose God's compassion and mercy. You lose the ultimate relationship that God desires to have. See, these names are lured to what God could possibly lose if they continue their journey of unfaithfulness as they continue to worship other things other than God. I like what one has said. We learn that God's love is not blind, nor is it coercive. One has said this. It follows that sense mercy without response is self-defeating, and forgiveness without a healed relationship is empty. There may come a point at which the only thing left for even God to say is, how often would I and you would not. How often would I, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. Oh, extremely hard words to hear, but words that the people of God during that day, and for us today to hear. But what's amazing, as he uncovers and shows the un unfaithfulness of God, we see that even in the midst of that, God gives us hope. Look at verses 10 and 11. In chapter 2, verse 1, I'll read those for you. Listen to what he says again. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, in chapter 2, verse 1, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Hosea now is echoing the promise God made to Abraham, a promise that God would keep despite Israel's ongoing unfaithfulness. See, the heart of the good news for God and for us is reconciliation. God is committed to reconciling ourselves to himself, and will go to great cost to accomplish that, as we ultimately see in Christ. But what, what's amazing about this passage, it says that they are given new names that remind us of a new name that we are given when we become a part of God's family. Those who know mercy are, and not the people of God are now called, they have mercy and they are part of the people of God. They're called children of the living God. It says, you are my people, you have received mercy. God is about changing their name to, to show to them that they have a new identity. This new identity is reflects God's commitment to them and to us. 
You see, Hosea uses covenant language to remind them and us that these, my sons and daughters, were dead, but now alive. These were once lost, but now are found. See, that is God's relentless love. He's determined to make that true even for these unfaithful people, even for us today. God is always about bringing back a people to himself. He's all about restoring and reconciling himself to us. And we learn ultimately that is through Christ that makes that all possible. There is also a hint in this passage that brings attention to the reality that this offer is also to the Gentiles. Think about the people that, that, that Gomer had relationships with. They were Gentiles. They were not Jewish people. So Jesus came to bring salvation both to the Jew and Gentile. We get to see. Now we come to chapter 2. And even in the hope at the end of chapter 1 that Hosea gives to Israel, to God's people, we still see the importance for them to return, to repent. And if they don't return, and if they don't repent, they will face discipline. Listen as I read this section. Again, some graphic words beginning with chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she may put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I stripped her naked and make her as a lady a day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I, I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has displayed the whore, and she who conceived them has been acting shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers and not overtake them. She shall seek them, for they shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than, than now. And she did not know and it was, and that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which she had used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay her waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of the day of the bells, bells and, she, and she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lover and forgot me, declares the Lord. Heavy. A lot of stuff there. What do we make out of it? It's helpful from a ministry called Third Mill, summarizing some of what they're saying here. They said these verses shift attention away from Hosea's family's experience on earth to an inspired, listen, inspired account of a legal proceeding, proceedings in the court of heaven. In the Old Testament, God frequently reveals his plans for the future by granting his prophets knowledge of legal, legal deliberations that took place in the heavenly courts. 
We speak of some of these revelations as lawsuits because they, have, they, have, they give rather a full description of the proceedings of God's court. They often betray God on his throne, describes the summons of participants to court, reports accusations against and interactions with the guilty, and declares pronouncements of judgment. In this section, Hosea, beginning verse 2, is the first heavenly lawsuit where God summons Israel to court using these words, plead or rebuke. Plead with your mother. Plead with her, he says emphatically. Now today, this may seem like an odd summons to court. But the word for plead or for rebuke is a Hebrew word. And the term was used often in prophetic books for a legal contention or lawsuit in the court of heaven. The mother in view here was Samaria, the capital of the kingdom of Israel, where Israel's leaders resided. So listen, so in effect, God summoned the people of Israel to enter a heavenly lawsuit against her leaders living in Samaria. A lawsuit over which God himself would preside. And throughout this lawsuit, God alluded to ways in which Israel behaved like Hosea's wife, Gomer. Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea and brought trials on her children. The leaders of Israel were unfaithful to God and brought trials to the kingdom of Israel. But in this lawsuit, Hosea didn't simply report that God sentenced the kingdom of Israel to suffer the curses of his covenant. He also reported that God would one day woo back to himself. That God is about, even as he warns of judgment, even as he warns of consequences due to their, their unfaithfulness, he still wants to woo them. He still wants to bring them back. So maybe after a time of judgment, after a time of discipline, God will restore Israel to himself and have mercy on us and on the people, God's people. So in this section, God through Hosea pleads with Israel, what? To repent, to turn back, to come to your senses. The true husband, our God, our faithful God, the eternal one, the infinite one, delights to win you and us, you and me back. But we need to be, he needs to be clear on the consequences of their continual unfaithfulness. So as speaking to intelligent children, Hosea speaks God's words to Israel, clarifying where their unfaithfulness will take them and what will happen if they refuse to repent. In fact, God pleads with his people. And even as he uses this means of communicating to God's people, God is taking his time, using every art to win a response that will make the reconciliation genuine. That is what God wants to do with us today. He's calling us, in a sense, to repentance. Where do we need to own up to our adulterous heart? What are those things that mean more to us than God himself? And to make his point clear, I want to, there's two other words that we need to understand. Whoredom and hedge. First, the word whoredom, we see in verses 2 and 4. In the Old Testament, it's typically linked to idolatry, a common temptation that took hold after God's people entered the promised land. The people did not obey God's commands to destroy the idols and the idol worshipers who dwelt there. So since that time, idol worship frequently involved illicit sexual practices and participating in such practices involving heart and body, which constituted unfaithfulness to God and shows forth their covenant breaking. Now, can you imagine 
A God who has constantly saved them, rescued them, redeemed them throughout their history, continues to turn back to other things that are empty, that do not give life, that do not promise a, a forever relationship. But that is, that is why the severity of why he describes it so graphically, because he's trying to get their attention, he's trying to get our attention. Those things are not worth it as compared to our living, vital relationship with God. So he's graphic in his description to get their attention, to draw them out of their, their complacency, to draw them out of their unfaithfulness. But what's also amazing, we see some God, again, God's grace, even as he's pronouncing some discipline that they can experience. Look at verse 6. We see a divine hedge that God delights to give to his people. It says, Therefore I will hedge up their way with thorns, and I will build a war against her, so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She will seek them, but shall not find them. We see in this passage that God erects barriers for us when we are tempted to sin. God is about frustrating the efforts of Israel and us to run from him. So in mercy, God will not give up on his people. He will not give up on them in their desires to sin. But he will faithfully intervene to keep you and I from destruction. See, divine hedges are both personal and specific. What do I mean? Often, when I counsel men who are drug struggling with sexual sin, we often talk about how God places these hedges or obstacles to help them not to sin. It could be a computer that randomly shuts off, or it could be a friend who calls right at that, right, at that moment of temptation. But it's not only with those struggling with sexual sin, there's, there's hedges that God provides us in, in all of the areas that we struggle with in our lives. God is about bringing these hedges so that we will not sin, that we would choose not to sin, but that we would enjoy this covenant relationship that God establishes that reminds us that he is the one who gives us life, meaning, purpose, and significance. Not those other things that we so naturally gravitate to. So the takeaway for us here is that God is still calling us, the church today and those outside the church, to true repentance for our idolatry. And so the question that I need to ask myself and I need to ask you, where have you been unfaithful to your faithful God? Where have you misplaced your love from your one true lover, our true husband, Christ? Is it money? Is it lust? Is it your relationship? Is it, is it the pursuit of fame or reputation? Where, where in your life do you see that those things mean more to you than walking faithfully unto the Lord. What hedges are you trying to cut through to sin? I would encourage you to, as you are tempted to sin in certain areas, that you would stop and appreciate at times the hedge that God has given you, has given you to, to flee that temptation to be unfaithful to your covenant vows. God has given you all the resources you need today to fight temptation, to fight your desires to idol worship. He's given you his word. He's given you Jesus Christ. He's given you his spirit. He's given us one another to help us in our journey. 
You see, God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. That's the point of this section. God loves Israel too much for them to stay in their sin. God loves us too much for us to stay in our sin. In fact, Christ, we see our way to reconciliation, the way to obediently live in the covenant. The next two songs we're going to sing reminds us of the deep, relentless love of God. And I pray as you are, as you are listening to those songs, as you are singing those songs, that you would reflect as you sing. And as you reflect, I would encourage you to even repent as you sing. Often when I am singing songs that remind me of the faithful love of God, I'm often convicted of how I have not been faithful to him. How I have turned my, my loyalty, my lovers that I seek more than my true lover, Jesus Christ. Because in that moment, as we're singing the songs, I need you to encourage you that God delights to hear our repentance. God delights to, to, to forget and restore us. God delights to make you new. God delights to be your father, your true husband, the lover of your soul. See, the story of Hosea and Gomer reminds us that God's love, is, God loves us not because of our faithfulness, Hear that. God loves us, not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. You see, Christ saves us and continues to intercede for us, the bride who even covets other things. Until we see God face to face, as our brother Rodney is experiencing, we will continue to draw to other things. But for now, I'm encouraging us our husband, I want to remind you that your husband, Jesus Christ, stands and fights for you until that day. Let's pray. Uh, gracious God, we come this morning, I come this morning acknowledging that I am so much unfaithful to you. There's so many other things that I think bring me more meaning and purpose and significance than you. Father, I thank you for the grace to show me that. I thank you for the grace that you give to help me to fight that and the hedges that you provide us. But Father, the work doesn't start until we truly acknowledge that we are idol worshipers Until we confess that, we will know then that we need help. We need renewing. We need to be reconciled. We need to appreciate what you have done for us in Christ. Because you alone deserve our worship. You alone deserve our praise. You alone de de deserve our devotion. Because of the great cost that you gave us in Christ. But Father, as we sing these songs, as we reflect on these songs, draw us into your presence. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.